text as well. So let's go ahead and read the text, and we'll, uh, we'll pray and then get started. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we humbly come before you, God. And as Dave read earlier, we now enter into your presence, leaving behind the secular and entering into the holy. I pray now, Lord, that your word would be proclaimed faithfully and purely, that you would bring to my memory all that you have brought to my studies, through my studies. I pray, God, that Lord, no matter how eloquent of speech that I may have right now, it will do nothing. It will fall on deaf ears and hardened hearts if your spirit is not active, Lord. So we pray that you would meet us here this morning, that your Holy Spirit would, would move through me. I am but an instrument, Lord, humbled for this undeserved opportunity and privilege to present your word. God, speak through me. Proclaim the gospel. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. Convict us of sin. Lead us to repentance. Exalt Christ now. Be glorified. And if there be any here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray for their salvation now. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, we pray and we ask this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. We got a lot of people missing today. I just was looking out and Brenda's doing good, I take it. She's doing better. Surgery went well, I heard. Good. <clears throat> well, modern polls and surveys suggest that people, including professed evangelicals, overwhelmingly believe that man is inherently good and the goodness of man that is that that people are inherently good in and of themselves now this is not surprising to many of us and it's good to keep in mind as as we try to full, uh, follow the call of the great commission to go out into the world and proclaim christ and and as we do this we and, and attempt to do this to fill this call we will run into people of all different sorts of backgrounds, religious upbringings, beliefs, and ideas. But despite all of this, one thing that most people share, despite where they're from, their background, they all share some common beliefs, common ideas about themselves and about God. As this morning, in our text, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22, I want for us to see four delusions, four delusions that the common unbeliever has, four delusions that you may struggle with at times, four delusions that maybe you did struggle with at one time. So let's go ahead and, and dive into our text here. It says that, Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let's give a little bit of a background and context to our text here. Jesus is doing ministry. He's in and through uh, Judea. And 
He's performing miracles and, and signs and wonders, and he's teaching in the synagogues, and he's, he's teaching all, all over wherever he is. And around him forms a, a, great, a great mass of people. Thousands of people are, are joined around him. And they're going out to the land of Judea, and, and right, the four verses right before this, Jesus is teaching on how one can inherit the kingdom of God. If you look at the four verses right before, he says, um, unless, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So these children are being brought to Jesus, and the disciples are trying to shoo the children away. He says, ah, no, 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 get the children away. He's got more important things to do. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't shoo the children away. For unto the kingdom, or it's like these children that you must become in order to inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is synonymous with heaven. Um, and the idea behind that is children, if you have children, are very dependent creatures, small children. They're very, they're very needy creatures. And they, uh, not much they can do. And that's why they're always constantly, I mean, knocking at the door when, when you're trying to go to the bathroom. Mom, mom, dad. You can't get a moment of peace. They're very dependent creatures. Um, the smaller the child is, the more dependent that child uh, is on their parent. In fact, if it's not for the care of the parents, the child will perish, right? It has to be cared for. Without, uh, without the care of the parents, the child has no hope. And the idea behind that, Jesus says, unless you become like a child, realize your helpless state, and unless you, you become humble and, and dependent like one of these child, you will never inherit the kingdom of God. So it is just after that teaching that Jesus and the disciples start to wrap up what they're doing. They're on their way heading out, and out, burst through the crowd, comes this man. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about this man. We don't know really who he was, where he was from, um, but there are some things that we, we can gather. Now, this account is in three out of the four gospel accounts. It's in the Synoptic Gospel, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And all three accounts give us a little bit of uh, detail concerning this man. Now, all three accounts say that he was wealthy. So the fact of the matter is, this man, no matter who he was, whatever it was, he or whatever he did, one thing that stood out about this man was that he had money. He was wealthy. And according to Matthew 19.22, he was young records that Matthew 22, 1922 says that he was young. And in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, he was some type of ruler. So that's where we get the, the uh, story of the rich, young ruler. Now, again, not quite sure what he was a ruler of. He could have been a, uh, an official or magistrate or of some sort in, in a court. Um, or he could have been related to a, to a king, some type of prince. We're not sure. Um, not important, but although not much is said about him, we can learn a little bit from the description that we see here in Mark. One of the things we can see about this man is that he's somewhat, no matter, despite his prestigious uh, uh, stature in the society, he was humble. And we say, well, how do you know he's humble? It says that he ran. Now, I know that doesn't seem like a big deal, but you have to understand, in this culture, running was something that was not very dignified. A man did not run. That was something children did. So you would very rarely ever see a grown Jewish man running. Plus, it wasn't like what we have today. You have to understand, they wore robes. So they would have to literally gird up their robe, show those untanned legs from the winter, and go make a fool of themselves by running. And, uh, you know, just the other day, I, I, I was running, uh, you know, and I forget what I was doing, but I was just kind of felt like running, and I just ran. I was like, I look like an idiot. <laughs> I'm not going to run. Um, probably doesn't look pretty either. And so, I mean, just running, even today, is kind of weird. You know, if you see a grown man running, unless it's for exercise, you're like, Someone, someone's chasing this guy. Something's wrong. This guy did something bad, or something's wrong. You know, so even today, we kind of have that, like, why is this guy running? Um, so again, it was something children did. 
So we can see that, that he was somewhat humble by, by running. He didn't care about his, uh, you know, his reputation or, or what he looked like. He was running. And then what does the posture say that he has? Uh, what posture does he have when he comes up to Jesus? He kneels. He kneels before Jesus. He shows that, which is a, um, a sign of, of humility, a stature of humility, that, that he was um, kneeling before this, before this teacher. So he comes running through, kneels before Jesus. So we see that this man is, is it's not, he's not prideful. He seems to be pretty humble. And we can see from his humility that he was pretty sincere in his question. It wasn't as if he was brushing up next to Jesus at the store and said, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to ask you. Internal life, how's that playing out? How does that work? You know, this was something that was, that was eating at him. This was a question that he wanted to know. It was important to him. And no, no doubt he was most likely working. And, you know, they didn't have text messages back then. So word of mouth, they say, hey, this Jesus of Nazareth, have you heard about him? He's like, yeah, I heard him. He's like, he's right down the road here. He's, he's about ready to leave. And, and rumors have been flying around that maybe this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. He's doing all kinds of miracles. He's teaching, like, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, he's got authority. This this Jesus is someone that this guy wanted to meet. This guy had a question, and Jesus most likely would be the best person to answer, answer it. Again, so this, this question was eating away at him. He, he didn't want to let this opportunity to go. We see the importance that this man, the importance of this question that this man had. It was very important to him. And so we have the question, the question that is asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, the essence of this question is the greatest question one can ask. Notice I said the essence of this question. It's one of the most important questions that you can ask in your life. And it is remarkable to me how much time we spend thinking about the here and now and how little time, if any, we spend thinking about the afterlife. Think about it. I mean, the older we get, we spend more time thinking about, okay, my 401k, do I have enough money in there for retirement? Do I need to invest more? Where am I going to live? What, am I, what, are, what are our plans after I retire? What's going to happen to you know, that? Do we, you know, can we pay off our house on time? You know, are we going to live in this house? Are we going to sell it? Are we going to move? Who's, where are the kids going to live? You know, we spend so much time thinking about the future, which isn't bad. It's a good thing. But we spend so much time thinking about this life that is but a breath. Even if you live to be 100 years old, this life is but a breath in comparison to eternity. Yet how much time do we spend thinking about the here and now in comparison to eternity? It's crazy that even, even people who are atheists and, and deny you know, the soul and deny afterlife, they will they'll say, ah, oh, no, when you die, everything just goes black and everything. But it's amazing to me how little investigation they have done in this. I'll ask them, I said, well, what's, I mean, what's your thought process behind this? Why do you believe that? I'm like, oh, I just do. Eternity is a long time to be wrong about something. Eternity is a long time to regret something. And it's amazed me how little time we place on it, how, how little effort and, and, and thought that we place on it. Now, I know this was a, a different time. It was a different culture. But someone in this man's position would probably be the least likely thinking about something like this. First of all, he was young. The younger you are, the less likely you are to think about death. I know I wasn't. Last thing on my mind, when I'm young, I'm probably going to live forever. 37, I'm feeling everything now. Never thought I'd see the day where I have to exercise and diet. Never thought I'd see that day. I used to be, hey, you want to go hike half them tomorrow? Let's do it. Come home, like, what's next? Now I hike half them, I gotta fill the bathtub with ice. It, it's not 
You know, things, as the older I get, the more you start thinking about those things. But when you're young, you don't really think about those things. You're going to live forever. You're not going to have back problems, <laughs> knee problems, gray hair. Not me. And then your 30s hit. But this man, even though he was young, on top of that, was wealthy. One of the last things that wealthy people do is think about, any, they have no concerns. Not saying all wealthy people, not generalizing, but in general, you know, wealthy people are usually not too concerned about tomorrow. Any problems rise up, they have enough money to take care of it. Wealth provides security, does it not? The wealthier you are, the more secure you feel, the more late you're not worried about the economy, really. You're not worried about this or that. You've got money in the bank. But this man, being both young and wealthy, was concerned. And as we will see, he was a uh, pious in his religion. It, it appears that he was a pretty moral guy. He, he followed the law. But despite his wealth, despite his youth, and despite his religious piety, and, and another thing too, in this culture, if you were rich, that was, as we saw in Job, right? When we went to the book of Job, still kind of going through it, um, <laughs> a little pause. But as we, as we see in the book of Job, Wealth was a sign of God's favor in your life. If you were rich, God was blessing you. He was favorable to, to you. If you were sick, if you were poor, well, you probably got some sin in your life. You know, that's what we saw Job's friends saying. You got sin in your life, man. Repent. He's like, I got no sin. Not that he was sinless, but he's like, there's nothing that I'm not, I haven't repented of. There's no hidden sin in me. So in this culture, this man was young, he was wealthy, was a sign that to the Jewish people at this time was a sign of God's favor, and uh, he was pious in, in his religion. But despite all of these things, he still feels like something's missing, or just wants to be sure. And he wants to go to Jesus and have his, his assurance affirmed to him. Lord, I have everything covered in this life. I'm good here. But just want to make sure I'm good in the next life too. So just affirm for me real quick. I have a question. Now, while this question is a great and important question, the way it is phrased is dead wrong. And it leads to our first point, our first delusion of the carnal mind, the delusion of works righteousness as a means of salvation. If you're taking notes, it's the delusion of works righteousness. The delusion thought are uh, thinking that I can earn my way into heaven. This is a, a delusional thought of, of most people outside of Christ, right? Look at, look at his wording here. He says, he says, what must I do? What must I do? Matthew records it as, he says, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? So this, there is this delusional thought that um, I can earn my way to heaven. I can earn my way to heaven. That, that heaven, that the pre being in the presence of God is something that you can earn through your religious good works. But Jesus taught the exact opposite just four verses earlier. This thought process is, is very typical and common amongst unbelievers today. The natural man in his pride believes that salvation is something that is owed to him by their good deeds. And this is how most in our society think because this is how society works, right? Everything in life teaches this. You want a good job? You got to work for it. You want a good education? That degree that you have? You worked for it. You earned it. The house that you have? You earn it. If you want to make a name for yourself, if you want to earn money, if you want to have a good job, a big house, that's something that you've got to work for. The government's trying to change that by giving us money all the time, but it's another point. <laughs> but for the most part, if you want something, you've got to go out and get it. You've got to earn it. 
You've got to work for it. And we take this mentality that is true of the here and now, and we apply it to that which is spiritual. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. And this delusion is not only common amongst unbelievers, but it is common amongst those who are religion or of other religions. Christianity stands apart from every other world religion in this area of salvation. Roman Catholicism teaches that one is saved by doing the following. Receiving Christ as Savior by faith, yes. Being baptized, being infused with additional grace by observing the Catholic sacrament, especially the Eucharist, and die without any unconfessed sin. Hopefully you don't get hit by a bus. <laughs> the Mormon religion teaches that salvation is also through works. We're all familiar with the uh, Ephesians 2.8 passage that says, by grace you have been saved through faith, right? The Mormon Bible has in, uh, put in there four words that are not original in the original manuscripts. Those four words are, after all you do. You are saved by grace through faith after all you do. So it's this idea that, okay, you know, you have grace over here. You have Jesus' grace, and you have mercy, and you have you know, his, his work on your behalf. But, but, but you've got to meet him halfway. So you, there's like this bridge that comes down. You come halfway, he comes halfway, and then there's salvation there. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses likewise teach that salvation comes through following strict rules to earn salvation, learning their history, keeping the laws of Jehovah, and spread the news about the kingdom, a.k.a. door-knocking evangelism on Saturday and 9 o'clock in the morning when I'm still in bed. The Muslim religion of Islam teaches that in order to enter into heaven, your good deeds must outweigh your bad. There's a scale when you die, and hopefully, you know, Allah will look at it and say, okay, here's your good deeds, and here's your bad deeds, here's all the sin that you did, and here's all the good stuff that you did, and okay, you barely made it, you're in. That's why Muslims actually have no assurance of the salvation. If you talk to them, if you're going to heaven, they'll always say, I hope so. Never say yes for sure. I hope so. And it's funny, man in his pride wants law. And it seems like, nah, I don't know if we want law, but it's true. We, like the Israelites, want to go back to the bondage of sin, go back to the bondage of the law. We like, we, we like to have a checklist that says, okay, checked, I've done that, I did this, I did this, I'm good here, I'm good here. This is what this man wanted. Jesus, I've done these things here. Can you just affirm for me that I'm good? Can you just affirm to me that I've, I've earned my way? And why do we want that? It's because we want a checklist so that we can say, look me. Look what I've done. What does law, if we were truly able to uphold and follow the law, who does it bolster? Me. You. And and you will see a direct link between those who are self-righteous and those who are legalist. I, am no, I have witnessed myself. Those people who are the most legalist people you ever meet are also the most self-righteous. And this is what man wants. They want a piece of paper that says, yes, you did it. You're good. You've earned it. Christianity is the only religion that teaches that you can do nothing. Nothing to earn your way to heaven. And that's the answer to this man's question. Nothing. But Jesus, however, does not say that to him. In fact, look at the first thing that he addresses before answering this man's question even. Verse 18, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here we will look at our second delusion of the carnal mind the delusion of the personhood of Jesus Christ. This verse has been uh, profusely used amongst uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons to teach that. They say, look, right here Jesus is saying that he's not God. This man says, come here, uh, good teacher. May I ask, he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Don't call me good. I'm not God. That's what they teach. 
And I asked him, I was like, so let me get this straight. You don't believe that Jesus is good? They're like, no, he absolutely is good. <laughs> I like Calvin's take on this passage. He says, it is as if Jesus is saying, thou falsely calls me a good master unless thou acknowledges that I have come from God. Basically, before you address me with such a title, you had better think hard about the implications of that title. More importantly, the implications of it to you. Now, Jesus, knowing the heart of all man, knows that this man does not have a proper understanding of who Jesus is. But there's no mistaking the clear teachings of Scripture. John 1.1, speaking of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 14.9, whoever is seeing me has seen the Father. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19, speaking of Jesus again, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God, and to think of him as anything less is blasphemous. But yet, what do we hear from people? Well, I don't, I don't know if he's God or, or whatnot, but I do believe that he's a good teacher. I believe that there is things that Jesus taught that, that we can look at and gain wisdom from and, and everything. I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said, he is either Lord, lunatic, or liar. Those are your three options when it comes to Jesus. He's either Lord or he was a liar. Either he knew that he wasn't God and he told people and deceived people, which would not make him a good teacher. If I stood up here today and I said, I just want to let you folks know I'm God, none of you would walk out of here saying, you know, he's got a God complex in a big way, but his teaching's pretty good other than that. He's still a pretty good guy. Other than that one point, we can still learn a lot from him. No. You would say, oh, okay, this guy is either a liar or Jesus really thought that he was God and was crazy. Or Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Think of the, the apostles when Jesus asked them, he says, who do others say that I am? And they say, some think you're Jeremiah or Elijah, one of the prophets. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And what is Peter's response? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, the, the other answers that were floating around about who Jesus were were not necessarily offensive. You know, they weren't necessarily bad titles, but they fall dramatically short of who he is, and therefore they are offensive. This delusional thought that Jesus was a, a good teacher or Jesus was just a, a prophet or Jesus was a, an angel all fall short to the personhood of Christ, of who he really is. People today will say that, oh, yes, Jesus was, is God. I believe that, but he's not their God and not their Lord. People want to use Jesus as the poster child of their social justice issues. They want to use him as the poster child of their political issues. That's not who Christ is. He is God. He is Lord. And no matter what your view is, no matter how high your view, you may think your view is of Jesus, if it is other, anything other than God and Lord of your life, it falls drastically short and is an offense. Jesus is either God or he is nothing. And he's either God and Lord of your life or your condemner. Now, I believe that Jesus is, is using a, a twofold reason here in making this statement, which I will get to shortly. But this leads us to verse 19, 20. Jesus' response to the man he says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus goes on to address this man's question, and, and it's somewhat surprising to us. Why doesn't he give him the gospel? Why doesn't Jesus say, 
Repent of your sin and believe unto me, and you shall be saved. In fact, not only does he not give him the gospel, he gives them the opposite, the law. And not even that, he gives them the second, if you are not aware, the, the Ten Commandments are broken up into two parts, two tables. Uh, the first table is the first four commandments, which, which is God's, or man's relationship to God. The rest of the six is man's relationship to man. And, and Jesus spends and his time talking about the, the latter part, the second table, man's relationship to man. And, and it's interesting here because he doesn't even summarize, he, like he does in Matthew chapter 22, where he says, he says, the law is summed up by this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commands summarize all of the law. If you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, you're going to fulfill the first four commandments. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to fulfill the rest of them. What's the problem? Who does this? Who loves God perfectly with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul. Not me. Who loves their neighbor as themselves? Not me. Nobody does this. But this man does claim that he does. It's interesting to note that Jesus uses the word defraud here instead of covet. And the idea is somewhat synonymous with it. Uh, the idea is that you, you would covet something, want something so bad that you are willing to defraud somebody for it. You're doing, willing to do whatever it takes. And we know, and I don't want to speculate and add to Scripture. I, I, I really hate doing that. But we do know that this was a rich man. And we remember in the epistle of James, I believe that's chapter 5, it talks about how the rich would defraud their workers. They would, they would work in their fields all day, and then when they come for payment, they would say, well, you didn't do it the way I like, so I'm not paying you anything. Not only that, they would drag them to court and sue them for things. So the rich were very well known for defrauding others. And I, I don't know if that's the reason why uh, the word defraud is used here, but it is interesting that Jesus says the word defraud. So... But is, is Jesus teaching that salvation is through law-keeping? Why is he saying, why does he not provide the gospel? He, he gives them law. It's because Jesus is simply meeting this man where he is and begins with this man's understanding of the Old Testament, teaching that the man who kept the law would live, Deuteronomy 30, verses one, or 15 through 16. And this was the common mindset of a first-century Jew. Now, the man's response is surprising. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Youth there being probably the age of 13. Uh, a Jewish boy, when he reached the age of 13, he was accountable to the law, and that's where they celebrate their bar mitzvah. And so that was probably the age he was talking about. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, honor your father and mother. I'm like, you're trying to tell me through your teenage years you honored your father and mother perfectly. Um, but... We see here his, his response is surprising. He says, all these I have done. I've kept all these things perfectly from my youth. And here we see our third delusion, the third delusion of those outside of Christ, the delusion of self-righteousness. As I already mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, people consider themselves good. I can't tell you how many conversations that I have had, how many documentaries I've watched or listened to, and you're probably the same way, of when the question is asked of someone, this random person on the street, hey, just let me ask you real quick, if you were to, man, bam, bus hits you, and, and you die, you stand before God in judgment, and would, is he going, why would he allow you into his holy presence, into heaven, and not cast you out? Heaven or hell, where would you go? Nine times out of ten, the answer is always the same. I'd probably go to heaven. Why? Nine times out of ten, the answer is always the same. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm not like Hitler, you know? Like, that's the standard. It's like, all right, we're all pretty good then. You know, I, I've never murdered somebody and, and or anything. Now, 
They, the, the unbeliever in his pride, in his self-righteous pride, uh, believes that heaven is something that is owed to them. Heaven is not something that the unbeliever not only believes that they can earn, but believes that they deserve. After just explaining to this man that no one is good, and here's the second reason I believe Jesus mentioned this, after just explaining to him that no one is good except for God, this man goes on to say, I'm good. Look what I've done. This man insists that he himself is good. Turn with me in Romans 3 real quick. I was just going to read it, but I, I think it's good that we uh, actually put our eyes on it. It really drives home the point. Romans 3, verse 10 through 18. Romans 3, 10 through 18. It says, none is righteous. How many? None. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curse and bitterness. Their fear or their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3.23 says, All have fallen short of the glory of the Lord. All has fallen short of God's glorious standard. What is that standard? Is the standard of God to be good? No. God's standard is to be perfect, as he is perfect. The standard of God is perfection. This man took the law at his face value. But what did Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount? He expounds the law. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus expounds the true meaning of the law. He says, you have heard it said that, you know, do not murder but I say unto you, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, if you're angry with your brother, if you have hatred in you, you have committed murder. You are guilty, and you are liable for judgment. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery in your heart, and you are guilty. Jesus addresses the deeper issues of the heart, for it is out of the heart, Come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander, Matthew 15, 19. You see, the ignorance, the ignorance of the extent and spiritual nature of the law of God makes people think themselves better conditioned than they are. Jesus did not give this man the gospel here. Why? Jesus did not tell this man to repent. Why? Because at this point, he feels like he's got nothing to repent of. He's good. This man does not believe he needs a spiritual savior. He believes he is his own spiritual savior. Verses 21 through 22. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The text says that Jesus loved him. I love that. I love that because it's so opposite of me. Talking with people and people getting upset or, or, or people you know, claiming their self-righteousness and, and their false ideas of, of how, which are contrary to scripture. And, you know, it, it frustrates me so much at times. And I, I've, gotten in, I, I've gotten into, you know, debates with people and I've tried to be loving and try to be patient and try to show them what the scriptures teach only for them to say, eh, that's your truth. And I'm just, at times, just want to give up, throw up my hands and say, forget it, whatever, I'm done. 
But Jesus here is patient with this man, probably because he, he could see so this man was sincere in his question. Now, how does Jesus display this love for him? How does Jesus display this love? By exposing his sin. False teachers like Joel Osteen have said things such as, I don't like to talk about sin to my people. Well, why not? Well, you know, they're beat up enough as it is by the world. You know, they don't, they don't need me beating them up over their sins. They need encouragement. They need to be built up. Not to feel bad about themselves. Folks, man's problem is not that they have a low view of themselves. Man's problem is that they have too much of an elevated view of themselves, much like this man. Man's problem is that he's not beat up enough over sin. You look at the world. Do you think people are beat up over their sin? Do you think people have a low view of themselves? No. The exact opposite is true. They need to be broken over their sin against a holy God. Loving, loving someone, if you truly love someone, you're going to have to address sin. David Hendon is not here. He had surgery Thursday, right? 17 years old? 16. 16 years old, and he had surgery. He had cancerous lesions. I'm looking at Bernie because I'm waiting for her to correct me. I'm like, no, no, you said that wrong. Um, cancerous lesions on his head. Now, how did this come about? The woman cutting his hair, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Cutting his hair sees these lesions and decides to say something. She didn't think to herself, you know what? This child just lost his mother a year and a half ago to cancer. At the age of 15, the last thing he's going to want to hear is the word cancer. I'm not going to put that on him. I'll let him discover it on his own. She didn't say, I don't want to offend him. I don't want to embarrass him. No. She said, you need to get this checked out. This is serious. This is life, could be life-threatening. Get it checked out. And sure enough, cancerous lesions. Thank God for her doing that. Sin kills, and left unrepentant, sin kills the soul. The most loving thing we can do is warn people and give them the remedy that is found only in Christ. Jesus tells this man to go and sell all, his, all of his possessions and give it to the poor and come follow him. Again, seems perplexing. The last thing you want to do when you're talking to someone about the gospel is mention money, right? That's the last thing you want to do. But here, Jesus begins with it. But where in the Bible does it say that we have to sell our possessions and give all to the poor to be a disciple of Christ? I don't see it. It would appear that Jesus is, again, teaching some sort of works righteousness or legalism. I mean, is this really how one inherits the kingdom of God? Is this one really how one inherits salvation and becomes saved and gets to heaven by, by giving away all their possessions? No. Jesus is simply exposing this man's final delusion, which is the delusion of idolatry. The delusion of the seriousness of one's sin. Upon hearing these words, the man became disheartened or sad. Why? Because he knew that he could not do what was requested of him. Give away all my possessions? Uh, Lord, I'm not like some of these other people in the crowd here, okay, who have a fish. Okay, I've got land. I'm very wealthy. I'm not going to give away everything. 
I'll do anything else, Lord. Just give me a checklist. Give me something, a ritual I can follow. Give me a behavior that I, I can model. Don't actually have me really sacrifice something. I'm not going to let go of this. That's mine. I earned it. I refuse to let go of this. You, you see, Jesus wasn't teaching some form of works righteousness here or saying that you have to sell all your possessions and give to the poor in order to get to heaven. He's exposing this man's idolatry. This man thinks to himself, I have followed the laws of the, of the Lord. I have followed these. I've kept all the laws since my youth. You have. Okay, go sell all your riches and give to the poor and follow me. No. Nope, won't do that. Commandment one, you shall have no other God before me. He failed. Not only that, the one thing that, that this man explicitly says he's followed from his use is the second table of the commands, loving his neighbor as himself. It is obvious that his refusal to give up his treasures reveals what? He does not love his neighbor as himself. He loves nobody as much as he loves himself. Folks, if there is something in your life that you refuse to part with, they refuse to, to leave for following Christ, that is idolatry. If you say to yourself, I'm willing to follow Jesus, I'm willing to come to church as long as. I'm willing to do this as long as it doesn't interfere with this. I'll follow Jesus. I'll come to church on Sunday unless it's football season. I'll follow Jesus. I'll look into this Christianity, but I'm not giving up this. I remember uh, having a conversation with someone, and, and they're saying, oh, so do you believe that uh, God sends homosexuals to hell because, just because they're gay and they're born that way? And I said, no, I, he sends anybody to hell because they re, don't refuse to repent of their sin. They said, oh, so you do believe that? I said, no, they're not going to send necessarily to hell for, for homosexuality, but idolatry. If you tell God, Lord, I am here, here I am, I surrender to you, you can have all of me except this. This you cannot touch. And I don't mean to pick on homosexuality, but it's anything. We all struggle with this at times. The world struggles with it at times. You can't have my freedom. You can't have my time. I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to give up this sin here. Whatever that is that is hindering you, that is your God. Many people, all unbelievers, are delusional to the fact that they are an idolater. And this man wasn't necessarily an idolater of money. He was an idolater of himself. Phil said many times, you know, money was just the instrument and tool that fueled his real God, which was himself. This man fails completely at the commands that he thought he held so greatly. His love for this life was greater than the next. Matthew 16, 24 to 26, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he wins the whole world and forfeits his soul? Luke 14, 33, Therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, this does not mean that we have to give up everything, but it means that we are willing to. Paul understood this when he says in Philippians 3, 7-9, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sakes, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In this one statement, Jesus reveals to this man that he cannot earn his way to heaven, that he has not kept the law, and therefore is not good, and that he is in fact an idolater. Jesus was not teaching legalism here by exposing this man to the law, but teaching the gospel. The law does not require that one be good to go to heaven. The law requires the one to be perfect. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let the weight of that statement sink in for a minute. Does that bring about hope to you? Who here would raise their hand and say, Yep, that's me, perfect. Now, what does that bring about? Despair, does it not? Who in this room would qualify? It brings about despair. And that's the point. The law brings an end to oneself. And it's not until you are brought to an end of yourself, until you have realized the utter helplessness state that you are in, it isn't until you face the bad news that you are ready for the hope of the good. For there is good news. There is one who is perfect, who lived a sinless, perfect life, who perfectly fulfilled the requirements of God's law. And this is why Jesus couldn't just come and die on the cross and be raised and, and, and go back to heaven. He had to come and live a perfect life to live the life that you and I failed to live. He had to earn our righteousness. He was sinless. And it is on the cross where he takes the punishment for our sin and gives to us his righteousness. It's called the great exchange. Where on the cross, God looks at Christ as if he were me. So that when he looks at me, he sees Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. Our text ends with the sad words of, he went away sorrowful. This word in the Greek is like a deep grieving. It wasn't like he just walked away sad. This man was sorrowful. He was grieving. He was in grief. I mean, think about it. This man was hoping to be affirmed by Jesus but in, instead has his sin of idolatry exposed. He is grieving because he knows that he will not depart from his true love, his true God, the idol of self. And he walks away sorrowful. And this is the wrong sorrow to have, for there is two types of sorrow, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Upon hearing that you are an offender of God, you're an offender of God's law, you are a sinner and thereby unable to earn your salvation through good works, you will either have worldly sorrow, that is mainly just grief and regret, or you will have sorrow that leads to repentance. What is repentance? A confessing and turning from your sin. Confession and repentance are necessary for salvation. Acts 26, 20. Turn with me real quick. Lastly, as we wrap up, Luke. Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14 right there. Now we're going to just start reading in it. Here's the picture of godly grief, godly sorrow. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with a contempt. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortionists, unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Sound familiar? I give tithes all that I get. 
but, this, but the tax collector standing by far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a picture of godly sorrow, godly grief. When you've been confronted on your sin, been confronted on the law of God, see yourself, you've been weighed and been found wanting, and you say, Lord, I can do nothing. I have nothing. I am guilty and worthy of your condemnation. I am a sinner. All I can do is in shame plead for your mercy, plead for your grace. I can do nothing else, Lord. I bring you nothing but my sin. Have mercy on me. This is what godly sorrow produces. In closing, for those of you who are in Christ, even though we may have repented of these things of self-righteousness and trying to earn our favor with God, these things can still rear their ugly head, can't they? Where I, I know I, I struggle with it at times where I mess up, I sin, I fail, and I think to myself, ah, God's sitting up there shaking his head like, ah, Cameron blew it again. And we feel like the joy has been sucked out of our lives. But know this, that God's love and acceptance of you, if you are truly in Christ, is no greater and no less than the moment that you sin or don't sin. Why? Because when he looks upon you, he sees Christ. Because on the cross, he saw Christ as if he were you. This doesn't mean that we can't quench the spirit with our sin. But we do good deeds. We go out in the world and perform good deeds, not to earn God's favor, but out of appreciation that we already have God's favor. And if there be any here that does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, I plead with you to know him. I pray that you don't leave here today with worldly sorrow which leads to spiritual death. But with godly sorrow, that leads to repentance and life. Think through our text today. You must recognize that there is nothing you can do to earn salvation. You must recognize that, that you yourself are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. You must recognize Christ as God and the only hope of your salvation. And you must repent, abandon your sin, and follow Christ. Does this mean you're going to be perfect? No. You're just going to cling to the one who is. I'll end with a quote from George Whitfield. He says, quote, True conversion means turning not only from sin, but also from depending on self-made righteousness. Those who trust in their own righteousness for conversion hide behind their own good works. This is the reason that self-righteous people are so angry with the gospel preachers because the gospel does not spare those who will not submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, end quote. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you again as we close, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life we have in you. Lord, I pray for godly sorrow today amongst all of us, God a sorrow that leads to repentance. I pray that you would weigh heavy on our hearts what we have learned from your word, that we apply it to our lives, and we remember that the favor that we have, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf, and we rejoice in that. And let that be the motivation for godly living. And for those who do not know you, may the, the weight of this text bear upon them. May they see their sin. May they see their need to confess, to repent, to turn to you. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. 
Father, thank you. Thank you for being merciful to a foolish sinner such as myself. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your grace. Be glorified now as we sing the song. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.